you have your Bibles, please open it to Mark 14, verses 12 through 26. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I want to start this morning with a history lesson for us. On October 3rd, 1789, George Washington signed and issued a proclamation that November 26th, it was a Thursday of that year, would be set aside for rendering thanks to what he referred to as that great and glorious being for the newfound government, for peace and for plenty that was found in America. He said this, he said, now therefore I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceful and rational manner in which we have been able to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one now lately instituted, for the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed, and the means we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge. Fast forward then 74 years later, on September 28, 1863, Sarah Josepha Hale, a 74-year-old magazine editor for a magazine called Godey's Lady Book, wrote a letter to President Abraham Lincoln urging him to declare the day of our annual Thanksgiving be made a national and fixed union festival. So she wrote to Lincoln, she said, you may have observed that for some years past there has been an increasing interest felt 
in our land to have the Thanksgiving held on the same day in all the states, and it now needs national recognition and authoritative fixation to become permanently an American custom and institution. Well, Mrs. Hale's letter must have struck a chord in Lincoln because he responded to Mrs. Hale, unlike his presidential predecessors who had for 15 years completely ignored her altogether. So exactly 74 years later, to the day after George Washington's Thanksgiving proclamation on October 3rd, 1863, Abraham Lincoln penned a proclamation. And for all of the young whippersnappers over here, think of it as uh, a very early presidential tweet that went out. (laughs) But listen to what he said in his proclamation. Washington, D.C., October 3rd, 1863, by the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. The year that is drawing toward its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties, which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added, which are of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence of Almighty God. Population has steadily increased, notwithstanding the waste that has been made in the camp, the siege, and the battlefield. And the country, rejoicing in the consciousness of augmented strength and vigor, is permitted to expect continuance of years with large increase of freedom. No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy." It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that while offering up the ascriptions that are justly due to him for such singular deliverances and blessings that they do also with humble penitence, for our national perverseness and disobedience commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged. And fervently implore the interposition of Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it as soon as it may be consistent with the divine purposes to, to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. In testimony thereof, I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed, done at the city of Washington this third Thursday of October in the year of our Lord, 1863, and of the independence of the United States, the 88th, by the President, Abraham Lincoln, William H. Seward, Secretary of State. A lot different than what we hear today, right? For many Americans... Thanksgiving Day is a day of remembrance and reflection. 
when we give thanks for all the many blessings in our lives. Thanksgiving also stands as a commemoration of that famous Thanksgiving feast at Plymouth in 1621 when the English colonists gathered with Native Americans to celebrate the plenty that they had experienced and they gave thanks to God for it. And for some of us today, the day of Thanksgiving has simply become just another celebration of yet another glorious defeat over the Dallas Cowboys. Thanksgiving tradition, no matter what it means to us, though, and the proclamation that inaugurated it is a modern-day example of what Passover meal and the Lord's Supper represent for the covenant people of God. Now, we all know that every metaphor at some point falls short, okay? But Thanksgiving Day and the proclamation that inaugurated it was as close to an example that I could find of the Passover meal that we're going to be discussing here today. It's um, and Memorial Day, as Gordon mentioned earlier. Memorial Day is, set, is yet another example that is set aside by a proclamation to remember and give thanks to God. So let's start with a brief history of the Passover meal. We have to go all the way back to the book of Exodus, okay? The tradition of Passover meal begins way back in Exodus chapter 12 and 13. Jacob's descendants were being crushed under Pharaoh's fist, and in the fullness of God's sovereignty, God had had enough. And so God sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh to demand the immediate release of the Hebrew people. But you know the story, Pharaoh refused, and so God hurled down relentless shock and awe upon the Egyptians. It was an epic standoff. Pharaoh, thinking himself to be a god, is merely a pawn under God's sovereignty. Pharaoh refused to release God's people, the beloved people of Israel, and so God declared that he would kill all of the beloved firstborn sons of Egypt. And not just the firstborn people, the firstborn of all Egypt, the firstborn cattle, the firstborn livestock, it was awful. God had promised, though, to rescue Israel. Israel had been waiting for a long, long time for God to fulfill his promise. Finally, God is going to remind everyone that he alone is God. He will rescue Israel, and he's going to give them a meal tradition, a proclamation to remember it by. Except this meal tradition that God is going to give them isn't going to be a relax, sit down, stuff your face, and stay for a little while kind of meal. This meal tradition is going to be a takeout kind of meal. So on the eve of Israel's deliverance, God instructs the people of Israel to slaughter an unblemished year-old sheep or goat, paint its blood above their doorpost, roast the animal with fire, eat all of the meat, and they were to eat it that night. All of it. They were to eat the meat along with the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs. The Lord even instructs them how they are to eat this meal. He says this in Exodus 12, 11. He says, you are to be dressed and ready to travel. Your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you will eat it in a hurry. So this is no feast. This is actually rations before the road trip. And this is not just rations before the road trip. The blood on their doorpost is literally their salvation and deliverance. Up to this point, the plagues have only rained down on the Egyptians. But this final plague will envelop 
all of Egypt, including the designated camp of the Israelites. And so through his spokesman Moses, the Lord tells the people of Israel, he says, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, why did God spare the Israelites? Was it because the Israelites deserved to live and the Egyptians did not? No, the reason God spared his covenant people was because he had determined that the blood of an unblemished sacrifice would shelter his covenant people. So if we were to think back just a few moments to, the, to that speech that Abraham Lincoln, the proclamation that he gave, he said that blessings which are so constantly enjoyed, we are prone to forget the source from which they come. God made a proclamation that the Hebrew Israelites were to never forget the source of their deliverance. God instituted this Passover meal as an annual reminder, a tradition that would teach and remind every generation thereafter. Exodus 12:14 says, "Now this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance." Exodus 12:24-26 says, "You shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever." When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You shall say to them, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who has passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared your homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. Bobby Jameson wrote in his book, Understanding the Lord's Supper, he said, This Passover meal marked the birth of their nation. Who is Israel? They are the people rescued by God from Egypt. The Passover meal instituted an annual reminder that they were a people, the people whom God freed from slavery and made his own. As we come to this morning's passage of Scripture in the book of Mark, Jesus celebrates the remembrance of this historical Passover meal with his disciples. He redirects its significance, he elevates it, and he renews his disciples' identity and anyone who calls upon his name for deliverance. He renews their identity as the people whom God freed from slavery and made his own. So if you have your Bible, if you're not there yet, turn with me to the book of Mark chapter 14, and we'll begin reading in verse 12. For those of you who don't have a Bible this morning, the the scriptures will be on the screen for you. We're going to read a a verse or two from Mark chapter 14, then we're going to discuss it, then we're going to read a verse or two, and then we're going to discuss it. So beginning in verse 12, and on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So let's stop right there. A few weeks ago, Uh, Tim pointed out that during the annual Passover celebration, Jerusalem would have been jam-packed, bursting at the seams with people. Deuteronomy 16, 5 through 8 stipulates that Passover could only be celebrated within the walls of Jerusalem. 
the Jewish historian Josephus reported that in the year that the temple was completed, around A.D. 66, there were over 2.5 million people. And that wasn't even counting the people who were considered unclean and weren't allowed to participate in the Passover. 2.5 million people that were accounted for. The disciples at this point are probably getting a little nervous because, to their knowledge, they still need a place to settle down. They still need a place to actually fulfill this Passover meal tonight. But Jesus is going to prove yet again that he is in control of everything. So let's look at verse 13. And Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Let's stop right there. So we know that the disciples that Jesus sent on this covert mission are Peter and John. We know that from Luke chapter 22, verse 8. It says, Jesus sent Peter and John, saying to them, go and prepare the Passover for us. In the book of Mark, Mark's description of this covert Passover mission sounds very, very similar to Jesus' preparation to enter Jerusalem back in Mark chapter 11. If you remember, Jesus said these exact 10 words back in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, when he instructed his disciples to go and find a cult upon which he would enter Jerusalem. In your Bible, it's probably entitled the triumphal entry. Um, the, same, the same words are found in that covert mission. Jesus said, it, it says, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them. So in both of these preparations, the fetching of the cult for the triumphal entry and the Passover preparations, Jesus sends two disciples on a covert errand that must be completed before his mission proceeds. Both errands entail mysterious meetings. They entail um, mysterious events that unfold, but they happen just like Jesus predicts that they will happen. So he says, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. So let's stop right there. The man that's to meet up with Peter and John would probably have been uh, easy to identify because back then it was usually only the women and the slaves who carried the water pots. Um, the men usually only carried water skins. Like I, I picture it being like kind of like a man purse or a man satchel or whatever we call it today. But anyway, this guy would have been rather easy to to identify because he would have stuck out. And we all know Peter. I. I wouldn't put it past Peter to kind of give this guy a little bit of trouble for it. Like, hey, dude, nice water pot. Like, you know, where you get that at the same place you got your skinny jeans? You know, he would have been easy to point out is the point. It says, he said, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room furnished and ready, and there prepare for us. Now, one commentator says that Jesus had probably already made this, uh, this kind of call-ahead seating, this Passover meal reservation with this homeowner in Jerusalem. The homeowner was obviously a follower of Jesus because he agreed to go along with the coded message and the homeowner was probably fairly wealthy because Mark describes the room being large and furnished and ready. Now, don't picture in your mind like furniture. The Greek word actually means the spreading out of rugs and carpets on which to recline. So this is a rather nice banquet room. And the jar of water 
possibly indicates that this home was located somewhere in the vicinity of the Pool of Siloam in Mount Zion. Mark seems to be describing really what we would call an upscale part of Jerusalem. So if you're looking at a judgmental map of Jerusalem, this probably isn't exactly automobile theftville, okay? It's probably a more upscale type part of town. So why is Jesus being so stealthy then? Why is he being so crafty and covert? Why is a secret mission with coded messages necessary? Well, I think there are three reasons. The first reason is that Jesus knew that Judas was destined to betray him. Some speculate that Jesus doesn't want Judas to know the secret location of the meal so that Judas won't know where he's going to eat the Passover until he actually gets there, and thereby Judas is unable to disclose the secret location until Jesus has fulfilled his plan. Secondly, uh, Jesus wants this Passover meal to be the most memorable Passover meal that they had ever experienced. This Passover meal was easily the most important meal eaten in the history of the world. Why? Because during this Passover meal, Jesus would identify himself as the Passover lamb. Jesus will identify himself as the deliverer, the rescuer, the shelter from God's wrath. Jesus not only orchestrates and presides over this Passover meal, he is this year's Passover lamb to be slaughtered. Third, this was a night that devout Jews were filled with hope of God's intervention again and once more. The the Jewish commentary on this passage explains that in that night they were redeemed and in that night they will be redeemed in the future. So this Passover would be the fulfillment of Israel's hopes and Jesus wanted them to see it and remember it. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He has everything calculated and planned out perfectly according to God the Father's will. Even approaching his darkest hours, Jesus proves that he is in complete control from beginning to the final journey to the cross. So Jesus is not the helpless victim that some scholars have tried to make him. There's no hint of desperation or fear or anger Even as these plots against Jesus continue to escalate, Jesus displays, as he has throughout his entire ministry, an absolute sovereign freedom and authority to fulfill God's ultimate plan of deliverance for his chosen people. So let's pick up in verse 16 again. Mark records in verse 16, the disciples went out and they came to the city and they found it just as Jesus had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So Peter and John, having found the water jar man, the homeowner, and the house just as Jesus said they would, they quickly got to work in preparing the Passover meal. No doubt the homeowner and the servants of the household helped with the preparations of it. And just like every other Passover, they searched the house for leaven, they found none, they purchased a lamb, and they took the lamb to the temple where it was sacrificed in a huge assembly line set up by the Levites. The lamb's blood was flung upon the altar, and then they were back to the house where the lamb was quickly put to roasting, just like tens of thousands of other lambs all across the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem would have literally been enveloped with the reminiscent scent of roasting lamb. 
So let's get a mental picture now of this Passover meal. Verse 17 says, when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve. Now, evening, according to the Jewish reckoning, began sometime after 6 p.m. Then it says, as they were reclining at the table and eating, and we'll stop there, from what we can piece together from the other Gospels, especially John chapter 13, verses 23 through 26, the seating arrangement of of this Passover meal from stage left to stage right would have been Judas, Jesus, and John. It it was customary to recline at the table on the left elbow. And so this means that this would have put Jesus' head at Judas' chest and John's head at Jesus' chest. So before we proceed with this next text, we need to know a little bit more about the process of the traditional Passover meal. Rabbi Gamaliel, uh, he was a leading authority in the Jewish Sanhedrin in the first century. He was actually the Apostle Paul's instructor in the law. He was mentioned in Acts chapter 5, verse 33, when he stands up and he actually speaks up and prevents, um, he actually saves the, the apostles from being killed. Gamaliel said this, whoever does not explain the symbols of the Seder, this Passover meal, has not fulfilled his duty. So Jesus is presiding over this meal, and so he would have been the one to lead them in all of the blessings. He would have led them through the recitation of the story of Israel's exodus and redemption. He would have been the one to explain the meaning of the bitter herbs, the roasted lamb, the roasted egg. Jesus would have explained the meaning of each element of this meal. For instance, uh, the traditional Passover meal incorporates four cups of wine. And each one of these four cups represents one of God's promises back in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. So the first cup that's represented in the Passover is the cup of sanctification. It means, I am God, I will free you from the slavery of Egypt. The second cup, known as the cup of judgment, or also known as the cup of plagues, is representative of God's promise, I will rescue you from bondage. The third cup, the cup of redemption, means I will redeem you. It's God's promise, I will redeem you. The fourth cup is God's promise. They call it the cup of praise. It represents the promise of God that I will take you as my people. So after the second cup, Jesus blessed and broke the bread, handed it to the disciples to dip into the bitter herbs. And it was at this point that Jesus dropped a bombshell. So back to the text, verse 18. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. The disciples began to be grieved and say to him one by one, Surely not I. Has anyone ever experienced this type of dinner announcement before where the dinner is going exactly according to plan? Everyone's having a uh, relatively good time and just like it's supposed to be and then all of a sudden someone uh, at the table drops a a big announcement and the room just kind of stops. I can picture that in my head. This moment for the disciples was terrifying. It was a break in the protocol and It was especially terrifying when Jesus clarified using a reference to Psalm 41, verse 9. He said, one who is eating with me. So I'm going to leave Mark chapter 14, but I'll leave 
Mark 14 on the screen for you, and then on the bottom half of the screen, you'll see some additional verses that explain this statement of Jesus, this statement, one who is eating with me. In Psalm 41, verse 9, King David speaks of Ahithophel. He says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Ahithophel was one of King David's most trusted advisors. 2 Samuel 16 Verse 23 says that the advice of Ahithophel was as if one inquired of the word of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel regarded by both David and Absalom. But during the revolt of Absalom against King David, Ahithophel, one of King David's closest friends and trusted advisors, betrayed King David and he joined up with Absalom. 2 Samuel 15, verses 30 through 31 David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and he wept as he went, and his head was covered, and he walked barefoot. Sounds a whole lot like Jesus in Gethsemane, by the way, stumbling. He's under excruciating emotional and spiritual burden. And all the people who were with David each covered their head and wept as they went. And now someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. So the disciples knew what Jesus was saying. Jesus said, truly, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were mortified. They were utterly aghast. Jesus was literally saying, there is an Ahithophel, there is a traitor among us. And Jesus' words caused immediate soul-searching for these disciples. John tells us in chapter 13, he says, the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one Jesus was speaking. Mark's gospel says in verse 19, the disciples began to grieve and say to him one by one, surely not I. In John's account of the Passover meal, as Jesus washed the the disciples' feet, he performed a beautiful demonstration of loving, genuine service. As Jesus washed Peter's feet, he said to him, you are clean, but not all of you are clean. John tells us that Jesus knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So as I described earlier, John was the one reclined next to Jesus, his head closest to Jesus' heart. Jesus was reclined next to Judas, his head at Judas' heart. And so Simon Peter gestured to John, tell us of whom it is that he is speaking. And so John, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, said to Jesus, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is the one for whom I shall dip this morsel and give it to him. Now, in that culture, to dip a morsel of bread in the, the common dish and offer it to someone else was a gesture of friendship. So Jesus dipped the morsel of bread, and in one last demonstration of love and friendship, and forgiveness, and grace, Jesus hands it to Judas. And he's literally offering the hope of Passover deliverance and redemption and and safety to Judas. You can almost see it in this expression of friendship. Jesus is saying, my friend, all you have to do is receive my deliverance. Will you receive my deliverance? I mean, can you hear the love in the Savior's 
act towards Judas? Can you hear the, the loving invitation to Judas to repent, to come clean, to give up, to go no further in this treacherous plot? He's saying, Judas, my old friend, I know what you're planning. Judas, why not relinquish your greed and be rescued? But instead of receiving the morsel of bread in repentance, Judas received it in arrogance and deceit. Jesus was offering Judas one last chance to receive grace. Judas didn't have to betray Jesus. Okay? Jesus was on his way to the cross to fulfill the plan of God, the sovereign plan of God, no matter what. Jesus said to them in Mark 14, verse 21, back in our text now, that he said, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And we know what happened next. Judas departed the Passover meal. He departed the hope of deliverance. He departed the shelter of Jesus. He departed the ultimate Passover lamb. He departed to carry out his betrayal of Jesus. And eventually, he ended up hanging himself just like his forerunner, Ahithophel, did. There may have been only one obvious traitor at this Passover meal, but by dawn the next morning, all of the disciples will have scattered and abandoned Jesus. If not by greed, we find that in verse 11, they will betray him in weakness in verse 37 through 42. They'll betray him in fear, and they betray him in cowardice. So my friends, this morning, in a group this size, there are among us here Ahithophels. Even amongst us, there are Judases. You're here this morning with your own plots and schemes appearing to be a friend of Jesus, but your heart deceives you into thinking that you can go on sinning with no need of repentance and deliverance. And this morning, the point of that for us is to hear Jesus' gentle plea to us to receive his offer of friendship and shelter. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me. Oh, the wonderful love he has promised, promised for you and for me. Though we have sinned, he has mercy and pardon, pardon for you and for me. Come home, come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. With Judas departed from the Lord's Supper, the Passover meal, we come to verse 22 in Mark 14. Jesus redirects the remaining disciples. He says, it says that while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it. He gave it to them, and he said, take it. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank from it. So the prophets of the Old Testament, when they were trying to um, get their message across, they would often resort to like overly dramatic, symbolic actions. What came to my mind, I don't know if you, you probably don't think this way, but what came to my mind is um, like when my buddy Matt Searing just didn't have the words to convey to me what he was trying to say, and he would say, here, let me just, uh, let me say it through interpretive dance, and he would, you know, go off, and he'd be out of, with twirler, you know, like he's got twirler. It was very difficult to understand what he was trying to say, even through interpretive dance. Anyway, 
in your mind, these Old Testament prophets, when they were trying to get their message across, they would often resort to overly dramatic actions. For example, Ezekiel shaved his head and his beard. He divided his hair into three piles. He set the first one on fire. The second pile of hair, he struck it with a sword. And the third pile of hair, he scattered it into the wind. Jeremiah made a yoke, and he wore it as a prophecy of Babylonian captivity. The prophet Ahijah uh, tore his robe into 12 pieces and gave 10 pieces to Jeroboam to prophesy how God was going to tear 10 tribes from Solomon's kingdom and give the tribes to Jeroboam to form the northern kingdom. So Jesus, being the ultimate prophet of Israel, was the master of dramatic illustrations and object lessons. We don't have an exact or an entire record of Jesus' explanations throughout this Passover Seder, but I can imagine that as he progressed through the elements of the Passover Seder, his explanations of this meal went above and beyond all the traditional explanations ever given during this Passover meal. Jesus was the leader of the Passover meal, and so he took a piece of unleavened bread, he pronounced a blessing, that would have said, Praised be thou, O Lord, sovereign of the world, who causes bread to come from the earth, to which the apostles responded, Amen. And he then broke the bread, and in silence, the bread was distributed and passed around the table. And it was in this moment that Jesus shattered the traditional silence with yet another prophetic and transformative statement when he said, This is my body which is broken for you. So the word body in Aramaic, which is Jesus' native language, it conveyed not just this is my flesh. It actually conveyed this is my entire person, my whole being. Um, The Greek word used is not sarx, which is flesh. The Greek word is actually soma, which means being or my entire person. He, Jesus is trying to convey to them, I give myself, I give all of me to you. So Jesus doesn't hand them his flesh. He hands them bread. He hands his disciples the same Passover bread that has been handed to every person who has ever participated in a Passover meal up to this point. These guys have an entire history of prophetic language and symbolic expressions. They understood that Jesus was teaching them something new. He was teaching them with another new symbolic expression. The bread that Jesus broke and distributed is pierced. Um, it's pierced and it's striped uh, with you know, little holes all over and, and, and stripes all throughout it. He, uh, it's actually a tangible picture of Isaiah chapter 53 where it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace fell on him, and by his stripes we are healed. So you should prove me on this this morning with just a little uh, trip over to the grocery store. Drive across the street to Price Cutter after the service. Uh, walk in the front door. Turn to your right. Pass the Starbucks. Turn to the left. Pass the salad bar. Uh, and then walk to the very end of the the first row on your left, and you'll find matzos and unleavened, striped, pierced bread, just like it would have been in the tradition of Passover. So on this side of history, though, on this side of Christ's death and resurrection, Jews still to this day, they refuse to recognize the tangible symbolism 
of the Passover bread. They remain obstinate in their rebellion to the gospel intent in the Passover. Anyway, as the traditional Passover meal progressed through the third cup, the third cup was the cup of promise, the promise of I will redeem you with every one of Jesus' explanations, every elaboration. Jesus explained and expounded upon the symbols of the Passover and he fulfilled his duty of the Passover meal. And I can imagine that, um, that the disciples are beginning to increasingly comprehend what Jesus might be telling them. I, I think a gospel light bulb is beginning to glow in their minds. Though the disciples didn't understand perfectly just yet, in time, it would become vividly clear to them what Jesus was showing them. Truly, this Passover meal that is a Passover meal that they would remember and proclaim for the rest of their life. So back to the text, Mark 14, verse 23. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will never drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The cup from which Jesus abstained is the fourth cup. This fourth cup is often referred to as the cup of praise. It symbolizes God's fourth promise, I will take you as my people. We've all been to fireworks shows, right? On the July 4th, we gather together, we grab our pickup trucks and our lawn chairs, and we find the local uh, city fireworks display, and it's a, a great time. And every fireworks display, if it's done right, starts off kind of slow, right? Starts off with bottle rockets and sparklers. But as it progresses, the explosions get bigger and better and more elaborate, like a, like a crescendo all the way to the very end. The, the biggest and the brightest rockets being sent up into the sky are last. Essentially, we're saving the best for last, right? So it is with this fourth cup. This is the cup that Jesus will one day drink with his own people, the people, the sinners, the elect, who by faith have trusted in God's promises, they have endured, they have persevered, they have taken refuge under the atoning blood of Jesus. The Apostle Paul reminds us that we were saved in hope, and hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes in what he sees? Romans 8.25 says, Throughout our lives, we hope for what we do not see, and we wait for it patiently. But what exactly are we waiting for? Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, gives us a little bit of a glimpse. It says this, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine, And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation." Just like he took his people, Israel, into a new land of promise, the land of Canaan, God will take us to be his people in a new land of promise, into a new heaven and a new earth. The God that we have waited for, 
the God that we have staked our lives on, the God that we have clung to when everything caved in, he will prove to everyone forever that he is a promise keeper. Mark 14, verse 26 says this. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So at the conclusion of this meal, it was customary for the Jews to remain together at the table for several hours discussing God's past and future acts of redemption. As the table uh, fellowship wound down, they would, they would sing the Hallel from Psalm 118. Uh, one member of the table would chant the text, and the other people would respond with a shout of praise saying, Hallelujah. Jesus took the prophetic, the prophetic psalm in Psalm 118, and he transformed it into his own vow in the presence of all the people gathered. So chanting the words of Psalm 118, Jesus literally pledged his ultimate triumph. He said, I shall not die, but live and declare the words of the Lord. So when Jesus stood up from the table to go to Gethsemane, Psalm 118 was on his lips. I shall not die, but live and declare the words of the Lord. That psalm gives an appropriate description of how God would guide Messiah all the way through the tremendous suffering and on to an ultimate glory. So after that, Jesus unobtrusively leads his disciples out of the house. They leave the city. They cross the Kidron Valley to the east, and they begin the the ascent to the Mount of Olives, where all of the affirmations of this Passover meal would be proven out. Now, what is the application to us this morning? How should we, as individuals and as a church, approach this Lord's Supper? I have four encouragements for us this morning. Number one, look to the cross. The bread that you eat and the cup that you drink are signs. They are tangible means of grace, object lessons that have been imprinted on our hearts of Jesus giving himself, all of himself, for us to the glory of God the Father. There's no magic in the bread itself. We bought it from Price Cutter. There's, there's no magic in the cup. It's Welch's grape juice, and if we want to get really technical about it, the bread should be unleavened and the wine should be actual bitter wine to remind us of the bitterness of what happened. The grape juice um, this morning wasn't poured out by a a pope. It was poured out by James and Rebecca Goff and David Vernier, who's like the opposite of the pope. Thankfully, thankfully, um, Christ is present here today because he promised that where two or more are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst of them. So this ordinance of the Lord's Supper is so simple that even a a baptized believing child can partake with, with a certain sense of understanding, and yet this Lord's Supper contains so many theological ramifications that even the most mature Christ follower will never be able to fully exhaust its symmetry and beauty. A proclamation went out from the mouth of Jesus, do this in remembrance of me. The bread and the cup are a reminder of the man, Jesus Christ, who is our Passover lamb. So in just a few minutes, when you hold the the bread and the cup in your hand, in your mind's eye, the first encouragement is to look to the cross. 
Remember what actually took place on the cross. A remarkable exchange took place on the cross. Your sin, my sin, placed upon Christ and his righteousness imputed to us. Essentially, when God looks at a Christ follower, he sees the blood of Christ and his wrath passes over. Did you hear that? Look to the cross and be safe. Be secure because of the sacrifice of the ultimate Passover lamb. Look to the cross and remember that um, no one is so good that they don't need the grace of the gospel. Look to the cross and remember that no one is so bad that they can't receive the grace of the gospel. So in your mind's eye, look to the cross. Secondly, as you take the Lord's Supper today, look inward and look back to the cross. The Lord's Supper was inaugurated to cause us to be reminded of our utter need for a deliverer. We have fallen so short of God's glory in so many ways. And this morning we're asking ourselves, Lord, is it I? Yes, it's you. Lord, is it I? Yes, it's me. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace that leads us to confession and repentance. But don't stop there. If the Lord's Supper only causes your guilt to be compounded, you have missed the point entirely. So come in really close here. I want to teach you a new word. Are you ready for this one? You're going to say it out loud to me in just a minute. I want you to say it back to me. It'll be on the screen, but it'll be in Greek, literally. So I want you to see this word. I want you to hear it, and I want you to say it out loud. You ready? Tetelestai. One more time. Tetelestai. Awesome. That word, tetelestai, was written on business documents and receipts um, indicating that a bill had been paid in full. The Greek-English lexicon um, says this. Receipts are often introduced by the phrase tetelestai, usually written in an abbreviated manner. Literally translated, the word tetelestai means it is finished. That word, tetelestai, occurs in John 19, verse 28, and John 19, verse 30. And these are the only two places in the New Testament where it occurs. In, in John chapter 19, 28, Jesus is in his final moments on the cross. It says, after this, when Jesus knew that all things were now completed, tetelestai, in order that the scripture be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Two verses later, Jesus, utters, Jesus utters the word himself. Then, when he received the sour wine, Jesus said, it is finished, tetelestai. And he bowed his head, and he gave up the Spirit. The connection between receipts and what Christ accomplished would have been quite clear to John's Greek readers. It would have been unmistakable that Jesus Christ had died and resurrected to pay for their sins in full. Tetelestai this morning proclaims to us a salvation that is ours, not to earn, but to receive by faith in Christ because he finished it. The bread and the cup are meant to drive home the objective fact of redemption for those who believe upon Jesus. Jesus shed his blood to redeem us. In the words of John Calvin, the godly ought by all means to keep this rule. Whenever they see the symbols, the bread and the wine, to think and be persuaded that the truth is surely present there, 
Why should the Lord put in your hands the symbol of his blood except to assure you of a true participation in it? In other words, as we take the bread and the cup, we will benefit most by saying to ourselves in our hearts, yes, I really am forgiven. I really can rest on that promise. I really can rest in it is finished. The Lord's Supper proclaims that Christ paid our debt in full. Our punishment has been removed. Our sins have been forgiven and forgotten. So look inward, but then look right back to the cross with joy and wonder and awe and thanks and worship. Third, as you take the Lord's Supper today, look around. Remember that the same Christ, the same Passover lamb who saved you, has saved and is saving the people seated around you here today. So rejoice that in gaining Christ as your Savior, you also gained his people, these people, as your family. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless and a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Remember that the Lord's Supper is the tangible reminder of the new covenant. In the Lord's Supper, we renew our commitment to Christ and to one another. It's a twofold commitment that makes, it's what makes a church a church. To receive Christ's benefits in the Lord's Supper is to receive Christ's people as brothers and sisters. So, parents, um, the Lord's Supper is an opportunity to teach your children. The Lord's Supper is for believing, baptized Christ followers. Teach your children what God said to the Israelites. You are to celebrate this as a permanent ordinance. You shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. And when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You shall say to them, it's a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared your homes. So teach your, teach your children that sin is serious, that sin brings death, but teach them that they too can escape the wrath of God by trusting in Jesus Christ. Number four, look ahead. The Lord's Supper doesn't just look back to the cross. The Lord's Supper looks forward to the coming kingdom of God, the kingdom of God which is already here and yet still to come. There is a day coming when Christ himself will prepare another feast for us and will celebrate with us. The Lord's Supper today isn't the main dish. This is takeout food. This is rations for the road, if you will. It's a means of grace for this next coming week, for the next month. It's an appetizer for the coming feast. In Christ's death and resurrection, God made good on his promise to deliver his people, and he will make good on his promise to remake the world, to destroy death, and unite his people to himself forever. So look forward. God is saving his best for last. It reminds us that God has brought us out of sin's bondage, and he will bring us out. The Lord's Supper reminds us that through Christ, God himself has redeemed us with his outstretched arm, and he will redeem us. The Lord's Supper reminds us that God himself has made for himself a people and given us a new identity, and he will make us his people because of Jesus Christ. Because of Christ, we're united to God. 
we're reunited to each other, and we will be reunited to God, and we will be reunited to each other. So who are we? We are the people of God, whom God himself has rescued. So as Abraham Lincoln said, no human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy.